Hi, my name is Kim Metrison, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. And I am super excited to be here with one of our amazing alums, Tara Pellicori, and we're going to have a conversation about her career, about her time at Rutgers Law School, and anything else we feel like talking about. Well, I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I want to sort of start at the beginning, if I could, which is, when did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? Yeah, you know... I'm sure the answer to that question is different for everyone, but for me, it was when I was really little, mm-hmm. long before I ever knew what it meant. Mm-hmm. I was one of those kindergartners who filled it out on my form. <laughs> I think that in my early years, I thought it meant anyone who fought for underdogs. I had a very strong sense of of, of that, of fighting for the people who couldn't fight for themselves. Um, that really interested me. It motivated me. Um, and, and I loved that, giving a voice to people who didn't have a voice to speak. I, I just thought it was very noble. And it was consistent with the core values of how I was raised. Mm-hmm. Um, and ironically, I never wavered from, from the desire to become a lawyer. Okay. And while I ended up in the field of transactional law, like we'll talk about, I mean, the commitment to pro bono work and to helping those um, has still been a huge part of my practice and my motivation. And yeah, I'm glad I did it. Excellent. <laughs> So there are obviously a ton of law schools to choose from in the U.S., and you ended up at Rutgers Law. Um, And at the time, we were still separate law schools. So you you graduated from Rutgers Law Camden uh, at the time. How did you end up at Rutgers? I am born and raised in Camden County. I married my high school boyfriend. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we live a few miles from each of our parents and our grandparents and our siblings. That's so great. I am a local through and through. Got it. That said, I actually did my first year of law school down in Miami. And Interesting. I did. And um, uh, my grandmother got sick. Mm-hmm. And my 2L year, I transferred. I came home. Okay. And, you know, come, Rutgers has always been a staple and an institution. And, you know, once I knew I was going to move back home, I didn't even apply anywhere else in the area. I applied to Rutgers. That's where I wanted to go. And and continue my education. Great. So then you you got to have that sort of experience of one L year at one institution and then moving to a second institution. So, and I'm not going to ask you where you were in law school before, but I am sort of curious to talk about what that transition was like coming in as a transfer student. It's a very different experience than it is coming in as a 1L. Yeah, well, I was very fortunate from a transfer perspective socially. So Mm -hmm. socially, I was very lucky because I had some childhood friends. Josh Locke was one of my classmates who lived across the street from me my whole life. We grew up together and he was already here. He had done his 1L year here too. Okay. It was great because he was very generous with his friends Mm -hmm. and allowed them to become my Mine. Great. Um, and these are people that I am still exceedingly close with and have, uh, I mean, these are people who have been to my children's baptisms and our, my weddings. And um, I was on the phone with one of them before I came here. So I was very lucky from a social transfer perspective, because mm-hmm. that can be hard, right? When your Absolutely. school years have already started and you've formed your bonds. Um, so that way I was very lucky. Academically, it was a little trickier because while I transferred from my previous uh, university with full credits, Mm -hmm. my GPA didn't transfer. So I actually had full credits, but a 0.0 GPA Mm -hmm. the first semester of my 2L year. Right. That makes OCI really difficult. Oh, right. Right? That makes So for folks who are listening to this who are not law school folks, tell them what OCI is. Yeah, so it's it's basically the process pursuant to which the school tries to assist students with finding employment. And a lot of these firms that are looking to recruit through this process have minimum GPA requirements. Sure, of course. So now I have this career I've spent my whole life building because, as I said, since I knew I wanted to be a lawyer for 
ever. I think I was in middle school when I started doing things like interning for, at the time, Congressman Andrews, Senator Adler, you know, Mary Previty, Lou Greenwald. I was doing those internships since I was in middle school. So okay. I had done all these, the right, tried to do the right things right. and build the right resume. And now I'm applying for jobs and everyone's like, you don't meet the minimum GPA. And I'm, I'm saying to them, I'm like, I don't actually have a zero. Right, right. And I couldn't find a job. So they said to me, get your first semester's grades and apply second semester. Mm -hmm. So I did that and I did well. And they said, second semester, when I came back with my grades, thank you so much, but we're done the process. Oh, wow. So I was actually really fortunate because one of my adjunct professors at the time, Matt Adler, Mm -hmm. who was uh, teaching an international business class, had no idea I was going through any of this. And he called me up um, after class some way into the semester and said, you have an instinct for this. Where are you working this summer? I kind of told him about my situation and he went to bat for me. He was an incredible advocate. He, at the time, was a partner at a firm called Pepper Hamilton, and he set up an interview for me, and I went through the interview process and got a summer internship with them, which at the end of my 2 year led to a job offer. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's a really good story. Yes, I'm very grateful for him. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a good launch, because it could have been sort of disastrous, and it ended up sort of... It's one of those things where you kind of feel like, and and then things went the way that they were supposed to. Yeah, because you feel a little helpless through a portion of it, right? Yeah. So um, it was a little bit of luck there. Absolutely. (laughs) So talk a little bit about, if you would, how would you describe Rutgers Law School as an institution? Yeah. It's something that I've always been very proud to be a part of nationally, but especially in our in our area. I've always had just so much pride when I've said it. I think that they are truly a community, truly a family. I think the world of our professors, I, I mean, I've received a top-of-the-line education here that I, I can vouch for because I went out into the real world and put it to use, right? right? Um, and I was able to compare what I knew going in and the experiences I had going in to my colleagues. And I always felt like I had been very well prepared. I will also say something I never expected, and I probably don't know that I even appreciated as much as I should have until a few years after I was gone, was the advocacy of our professors and administration. I had professors that I knew I had good relationships with when I was here, who I adored, who I kept in touch with, with, you know, on Christmas or, you know, a holiday or over the summer, who reached out years after I graduated at times just to check in on me. To email me, Professor Jill Friedman is is one of those professors for me who I adored when I was here, but time and time again, she would come out of nowhere and say, I want to, I want you to consider this position in some way. I I want to, you know, uh, there's an award I think that you could win. And I am so grateful for her because I don't know that, especially when you're a young graduate, I don't know that you see yourself that way Mm -hmm. or capable of those things. Yeah. And I mean, you know, what's interesting, you and I have talked about this before when you originally asked me to teach, because I also teach as an adjunct professor now at Rutgers. I started in 2016 with corporate lawyering and uh, over the past year. It's hugely popular. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Uh, I actually had a call with one of my students today, uh, my old students today. So I'm still living that spirit of people (laughs) who shared their time with me. Um, But now I run the entrepreneurship clinic. And when you originally came to me and we talked about the possibility of me teaching, we were outside in the quad Mm -hmm. sitting at a table. And I remember saying to you, I'm not ready yet. Yeah. I can't do this yet. I don't have enough experience yet. 
you at the time had shared some pretty powerful words and had motivated me and gave me a confidence in myself that I really didn't have to teach at the time. So I'm very grateful for you for that talk as well. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And that's actually another example of, of, you know, folks sort of reaching out to you because the reason why I came to you is because Jill came to me and said, here's this fantastic person who's one of our alums and we would love to have her in the building. So that, I want to segue a little bit. I want to go back to eventually talking about Entrepreneurship Clinic, which is really exciting for us. But I also want to talk a little bit about what you said, just sort of not having the confidence and not sort of feeling like, you know, I can, I can do this. And I think that that's a lot of people have that sort of sense of I, I, I'm not quite good enough yet or I yeah. got, might get there, maybe I won't get there, but I'm certainly not quite good enough yet. And I think it's particularly a problem often for women. Agree. And that women really discount their experience, they discount their knowledge, they discount their power all the time. And it's obviously a huge issue in our profession, and we see that. And part of how we see that is, you know, it's been a while that we've had about 50% of law students are women. But when you go to the kind of law firms where you worked, there aren't a ton of women. Or there are women who are associates, but then once you get up to the partner level, those women disappear. So I'd love to talk a little bit about, one, your experience as a woman in law school. But then I think even more critically, how did you transition from being a woman in law school to being a woman at a really big law firm where all the power, most of the power, really sat with men? That's such, an, that's such a great question. You know what's interesting about the answer to that question? I, I think I did it ignorantly in the beginning mm. because I felt no disparity between myself and my male colleagues during law school. Great. Zero. Yeah. I mean, when I was here, we were all equal. We were all uh, a class. We all supported each other. I, my professors treated us all equally. And I don't mean to sound naive, but mm-hmm. I think being transparent is the best way to have these conversations. So, you know, it, it, at the risk of sounding vulnerable when I say this, I kind of thought, like, my grandmom did this already. Mm-hmm. You know, things are better. You know, it's great. There's so much more equality now. Right. We've, we've fought these battles previously, and look how much progress we made. So, and I really went into my first year or two, despite some obstacles from time to time, with the same mentality. And it wasn't until the first glass ceiling hit mm-hmm. that you kind of took a step back and said, oh, I didn't see that there. Right, right. <laughs> right? Um, so, I mean, the first time I hit it, and, you know, I, I broke through it, yeah. but the first time I hit it, I was like, what is that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I yeah. didn't expect it to be there. I didn't see it coming. The first half of your question, I think, can be answered as it relates to law school by saying, I didn't notice it at all. Mm-hmm. Big law, which is where I was. I was, right. uh, I was at one of the largest law firms in the world. Big law is different. I think that everyone's experience within big law is different because no matter how big your firm is, at the end of the day, your culture are the few people that you're immediately surrounded by every day. Mm-hmm. I've yet to meet a firm or a company that doesn't have the right message at the top. Right. Absolutely. Right? Yep. It's just about how it trinkles down mm-hmm. to you, to your direct supervisor, to your direct colleagues. Right. Um, Everybody has the same story about this This is important to us and we're, we're working towards it and yeah, all of that. Absolutely. Exactly. Again, those first couple of years, while there were gender-based challenges or differences between my colleagues and I, I certainly didn't feel like I couldn't accomplish what the men could accomplish mm-hmm. in those first few years, ever really. Yep. Doesn't mean I didn't notice I had to work harder or differently sometimes, but I never thought it couldn't be mine. Mm -hmm. Now that said, have I been in meetings with all men, especially when I was dealing with certain other cultures or countries? They would ask you to be the one to go get coffee or do things that you can, you know, like- I've heard that story so many times. Yeah, I mean, so I definitely have been that person. Yeah. 
Or why don't you take notes? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Um, or, I mean, and people who I think I had great relationships with, I mean, some of them would say like, hey, we would invite you out for a beer, but you know, we're just gonna go with the guys, like right. but we'll catch up with you in the morning. And like, these are people who liked me, I think. I, mean, I had good relationships, but they assumed I wouldn't be interested, Right. right? Now, if they had asked, they would have realized I'm just a vodka drinker. Right. I mean, I don't like beer, but I would have gone, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I saw some statistics in, um, I think the ABA had published them. There were women in the profession statistics from, I think they were 2018 numbers. But what I thought was really interesting about them was the percentage of females who summer associated in big law firms was almost 50%. Mm -hmm. But to your point, you had said this earlier about the trickle effect, our equity partners only represent at the time something like 19%. And what I thought was even more interesting than that was that when you go back into the ABA's data about some of this published information, if you go back to 2000, right, almost 20 years ago, that percentage of equity partners is statistically calculated at somewhere around 15%. Right. There hasn't really been a tremendous (laughs) amount of growth. Right. And you raised a good point or question, which is why, right? Why do we see us starting out here and not ending up there? And I don't know the answer. I will tell you, at least as it relates to corporate, I have a lot of different friends at different firms. I've often heard the women leave for a better work-life balance, right? Right. I can tell you that I am extremely close with my family. I sit on boards. I teach as an adjunct. I have two young boys, and I am pregnant with our third. (laughs) Another boy? A girl. My first, yeah, first girl. (laughs) I've done all the things, and I, that was something I never understood. I, mm-hmm. I, I think I've had a great work-life balance. I've, you know, I work hard. I've made sacrifices, but I've done the things in my life I want to do. Mm-hmm. That said, I also think I lack perspective about what work balance, life balance is because I went from high school to college, college to law school, and law school to big law. Mm-hmm. As you and I have chatted about, I recently made a change to go in-house, and it was a difficult change because I was never unhappy. where I was. Mm -hmm. But even after just a few weeks in my new position, there is a indisputably different energy and culture in at least corporate America where I am than in the law firm environment. Right. Yeah, I actually, I want to talk about that a little bit, actually. I mean, so, so one of the things that's really interesting that you said, and that you know, is often sort of part of the claim about why women kind of disappear from partnerships and all that good yeah. stuff, is that they just want a better work-life balance, to which the response could be, well, maybe we need to figure out how to create that in our institutions as opposed to just watching all the women go away, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I wonder a little bit if you could talk a little bit, in big law and before you came yeah. to in-house, and we should probably also describe to people what in-house means, which just means that you are actually working for a company as our sort of internal legal department. Yep. What was available to you as what would have been a relatively young mom working this really difficult job in terms of support? for what you were trying to do. I am very blessed that way Mm -hmm. because support to me starts not with what benefits you have through your company, but through your personal life. Mm -hmm. So on the personal side, I I can't even explain how blessed I am to have my mom. So Mm -hmm. my mom and my grandparents, my children's great grandparents, help with them. Okay. So that has afforded me 
an ability to work hard in a way that I know some women don't have. Yeah, that's huge. It's huge because I've never, ever, ever worried about my children. Right. Right? right. I joke I joke that they just cut out the middleman because yeah. no matter what they asked, I would have just called my mom and then done whatever she told me to do. So I joke that you just cut out the middleman. So I've been very fortunate that when difficult schedules with work arise, I've had support through them. I also have the world's best husband mm -hmm. whose schedule is more flexible than mine. This is a very important part of, I think, the sustainability in all this. Not only are they supportive, they've never made me feel bad. Ah. And I say feel bad because, especially early in your career, before you understand the concept of professional assertiveness and drawing boundaries, mm -hmm. I missed things. Yeah. Right? I canceled anniversary dinners to oh, stay late, and I've yeah. done those things. And I, I hesitate to say it because it's not my proudest thing, right? Mm -hmm. But I was never made to feel like I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. They were never angry. It was, you know, I'd get home at one in the morning and they'd say, you must be exhausted. We have dinner for you and like, we're going to rub your feet. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, they made me, they understood that the sacrifices were for them. Mm -hmm. So that is a huge part of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I think that for women who don't have that, you have to create it, whether it's through daycares that you trust, friends, you know, extended family that you have. But I don't know that the big law job is sustainable for anyone who doesn't have adequate support. Yeah, absolutely. I will also say this is where the difference between, I really saw the difference between my male and female colleagues. I have a, a distinct memory, actually. I have one of my good friends mm -hmm. who I love, so I say this with complete objectiveness, <laughs> but he came in one morning and it was like a bright sunny day and he said, oh my gosh, good morning. How are you doing? How's your morning? I said, good, how are you? And he said, it was great. He said, I woke up and I went to the gym and I, you know, and I came home and we had Mickey Mouse shaped pancakes that were on the table. And then I like, you know, and he's walking to the office and I'm, as I'm listening to him, I'm like pulling the oatmeal out of my hair. You know, I'm like, my morning was very different than that, you know? Right, yeah. Um, so I do think that there are some typical gender roles that people fall into that, you know, can impact perspective. Yeah. That is an area where I also felt an obstacle, I would say, interestingly. Mm -hmm. Because my family was my support network, I think the partners and people I worked with at the time, you know, especially when I was a younger associate, would tell you that I mean, I never said I have to leave early to get my kids at five o'clock mm, or right. if my kids were sick, the expectation was my mom would take them to the doctor. And what was interesting is if, now that said, they're my kids, right? And I'm gonna be sure. there when they need me. But what's fascinating about this is I can remember probably 15 occasions over 11 years where I would say to someone, I'm leaving today to do X, right? Or my son has a doctor's appointment. And the perception was, oh, of course, you know, you, you do that all the time. You always have to get out of here for them. And, I wow. and, and I'm like, hmm, really? <laughs> um, so there is a way that people see women, some people yep. see women, that I don't think you'll ever change the perception. Yeah. Because sometimes it's not real and you That's can't change it, right? Yeah. But that was always interesting when people would say things like that. I remember you telling me a story once about, I think it was a partner at where one of the, the one of the places where you were working, it was a male partner, and he was introducing you and a male associate mm -hmm. to a client. And do you remember this story? I do. I, I remember the story and the experience. Okay. Can you tell the story? <laughs> sure. So the story is based on this concept of uh, micro versus macro inequities. And I can honestly tell you, 
I didn't face any macro inequities mm -hmm. in big law, right? I was never sexually propositioned for a raise. I mean, those things didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But the concept of micro inequities was a lot more confusing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I even understood what it was until it started happening. And basically what I would experience at times, and again, I, you know, overall my experience was wonderful. Sure. Sometimes I think what women can experience is people around you creating a perception of you that isn't true, right? Or not putting your best foot forward. So the story that Dean Mutcherson's talking about, I had gone into a meeting with several of my colleagues and the partner who was responsible for originating the matter to meet a new client. And when the partner introduced, and I should mention, I was the only female on the team. I was the most senior member of the team. I was also the youngest person on the team because mm -hmm. a couple of my male colleagues who were junior to me from a seniority standpoint had had careers prior to going to law school. So they okay. were older. So it was an interesting yeah. kind of combination. And when he introduced my male colleagues, he introduced them based on their credentials you know, please let me introduce Bob. He'll be a great member of our team because he's worked on 17 types of similar transactions in this industry. You know, please meet Mike, who prior to joining the firm worked in the industry that your, you know, acquisition is considering. He said, and please let me introduce you to Tara. She'll, you know, she's our senior associate on the deal. And if you get a chance, you have to stop by her office because she is two of the cutest kids you've ever seen. <laughs> and... I also had substantial experience, you know, in the billions of dollars leading deals in this particular space. Right. And that's a micro inequity, right? Absolutely. What I used to come home and say to my husband, I think he insulted me, but I'm not actually <laughs> sure because he's really nice. Right, right, right. You know? But and your kids are super cute. And they are <laughs> cute, so you should come see them. But it doesn't define me. Right. Right? And even and if so it's not meant to, it's a way of diminishing you in that space. Exactly. And I yeah. think it was subconscious. I mean, I yep, don't think, absolutely. I don't believe that any of the adversity that I at least faced, not maybe not any of it, but the large percentage of adversity that I faced from time to time, none of it was malicious. Yeah. I really believe that. Right. Which is almost scarier. Right. Right. Because I think it's very hard to change the perspective of people who don't understand what they're doing. That's exactly right. And you were talking about how the new job that you have, the in-house job that you have, that the general counsel there is a woman. And I think a lot about the ways in which women in leadership change the culture of an institution. I would like to think that women in leadership often change the culture of an institution in sort of a variety of different ways. So can you talk a little bit about why was it a draw for you to be at a place where the person who you're working for is another woman? Yeah. And what do you think that sort of brings to the, the workplace? The impressive nature of this particular general counsel and you know the rest of the team, including her director, assistant general counsel, um, they were a huge reason that I took the risk. I was happy where I was, mm -hmm. and my career was going well, but I, I stumbled ac across the opportunity. I started to get to know this team and, these, and the women who led the team, and I realized that their mentorship was something I was craving. Mm -hmm. When I looked at the opportunity and I, I looked at the in-house experience, I also realized, and I tell my students this, you know, being well-rounded is very important. Mm -hmm. The end of the day, being a lawyer is all about being a conciliere, right, mm -hmm. a counselor. And the more experience you have and the more perspective you have and the more relational you can be based on your experiences, the easier it is to connect with your clients, whether they're 
clients of your own company, right? The people you're serving in a business to business sense or clients outside the firm from a, you know, a law firm perspective. These particular women have been with the same team for decades. Wow. They've managed to keep under their leadership their team has worked together for 30, 40 years. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, if that type of retention doesn't say anything about Absolutely. you as a leader, yeah. yeah. I mean, they've had virtually no turnover in decades from That's their leader incredible. group. So I thought you must be doing something right as a leader if you're keeping members of your right. team for decades at a time. Yeah. It's also a very, I, I went to uh, a company that's very, a male dominated industry. They're in the automotive industry. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice to see a woman, you know, in a male dominated industry at the top and doing so well. To me, it's great to have them as mentors and role models. And all I can say is the company's doing very well and has not come with a few legal problems. Right. So they've done something <laughs> right for a long time. <laughs> Right. One of the things I often like to ask people who are out of law school, who have had successful careers, is what piece of advice would you offer to yourself as a baby lawyer that you wish someone had given to you? I think that there are three pieces of advice that I have found most influential throughout my career. The first piece of advice was you don't need to be so transparent. Oh, interesting. So... To me, life is all about being transparent and Mm -hmm. authenticity and who people are. But professionally, I didn't need to disclose to you, this goes back to the example I gave earlier, I didn't need to disclose to you that I was leaving at five o'clock to take my child to the doctor. Uh, I could have responded to your call invitation (laughs) by saying, I have a conflict, I'm available tomorrow. Right. Mm. I realized the more I shared, which I thought I was doing in the spirit of camaraderie and the more judged the outside commitments were, Mm. the less I shared, the more what I had to do within or without outside of work were just perceived as professional Mm -hmm. commitments. Mm -hmm. So I started to get better and I would encourage our new lawyers to think about that. What do you really need to disclose? You can own your schedule and you don't owe anyone those types of answers. Right. I think the second piece of advice I would give, we talked about work-life balance. I did not do great at it until I was about a seventh year. Mm -hmm. By the time I was about a seventh year, I started to do much better. And it was actually something my dad said to me. He said to me, you know, I love what a hard worker you are. He said, but can I give you some advice? Sometimes I think you confuse responsibility with availability. And I said, Mm. okay, what do you mean? Yeah. And he said, you should always be responsible. And sometimes when you are responsible for something, you have to make sacrifices. That's not the same thing as always being available to anyone who needs you. And that was advice that really resonated with me. And I started to ask myself that simple question. So when I would get a call at 11 o'clock on a Friday night and someone asked me to help with something, before I said yes or no, I would ask the question, if I say no, am I being irresponsible or am I just being unavailable? Mm -hmm. And if the answer was I was being irresponsible, I did it. Mm -hmm. But as I got more senior, if the answer was I was just being unavailable, I tried to find more boundaries, right? Right. Yeah. So that was a great piece of advice, and it was a small question I asked myself often that really helped guide me. And the third piece of advice I would give, which is going to sound a little flippant, and I don't mean it that way, is I don't think I knew I was a grown-up when I started working. <laughs> I really don't think I realized I was an adult. Yeah. Here you are. Well, you had someone who'd gone straight through as well. Right, right. right. I didn't have any college, other careers. school, yeah. Exactly. So especially when you have a trajectory like that where you're in school right. and then an employee, here I was, a 25, 26-year-old woman. I 
had my own house, I had my own car, I was engaged to be married, but I don't think I had a perception that I was an adult. Right, and a professional. Um, A professional, that's a better word than adult. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I don't think I had a sense that I was yet a professional. Mm -hmm. Had I respected myself as a professional sooner, I think I would have even done more great things if I had recognized that and demanded more respect for myself than I ever commanded. So I would encourage our you know, young attorneys as they start this journey to recognize that you have complete control over your destiny, that none of these choices are permanent. They, that's why they're choices. You can always make a different one. Learn as much as you can from every opportunity, you know, from a big law platform, whether it's right or wrong for you. I think at the end of the day, it's an amazing platform, right? I go, we went back kind of coming full circle to the start of the conversation. I wanted to fight for underdogs. Mm-hmm. Well, I end up being a corporate lawyer. Right. I also ended up in an extremely powerful law firm where I was able to do prestigious pro bono work with unlimited resources. Yeah. Right? I worked on sophisticated transactions. The job gave me economic stability. And I had a platform from which I could learn as much as I wanted to in order to enhance the rest of my personal and professional journey, mm-hmm. right? It's what you make of it. The tools are there. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking mm-hmm. time out to come and, and chat with me. It was really wonderful to yeah, talk to you. you too. It's always nice to talk to you. Aw, thank you for having me. <laughs> I appreciate it. Absolutely. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.